as we light the candle for Advent. The Lord is, Lord is great. In the season of Christmas, that we always should reflect on the Lord, the blessings that he is giving to us all year, all Thanksgiving. And that the season that we always reflect and always appreciate the Lord. Amen. Merciful God, who you sent your messengers, the prophets, to the preach the repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. Give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now, forever. Amen. Would you turn to Isaiah chapter 9? If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you in the pew. Most of our text will be on the screen tonight. And I'll read it here in a moment. But for now, I'm just really stuck on that Isaiah passage that we just sang. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Would you just take a breath... Perhaps if you want to close your eyes and maybe for the first time this day, maybe for the first time all week, just spend a moment of unhurried rest. Just to be still. And in your heart, chew on those words, that promise of that child king who is God with us. He's with us in this moment. He was with you all day today. He was with you this week. He will be with you till the end. And He will be with you even beyond Lord, we are grateful for Jesus, who is God with us. And we cry, Hosanna, which is save us. Because we're still waiting for full salvation, for full peace, full joy. In that day when all will be made new, and when Emmanuel will wipe away every tear from every eye, and his glory will shine like the sun and fill the new earth and the new heavens. Until then, Lord, remind us that you're with us always. Amen. Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. 
as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. And every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. Thank you for it, our Lord. Well, we're in the second week of Advent, which is that season of waiting And waiting is hard. Waiting is something that is supposed to be just for a season, which is why we often want to rush past it, because we have so much more important things to do, don't you know? But we need to embrace the waiting, and we need to do so in a way that is active, not idle. When I think about being active or alert, looking ahead and waiting in a way that's not so much passive as in you're just buying the time, but active in a way where even beyond rushing past it, you're looking ahead and you're propelled. And I think about uh, a story that has become part of the Wood family lore, and it's from a ski trip. My family's a skiing family. And we try as often as we can to get up to Colorado or New Mexico, and we try to ski. We don't try to ski. We ski, let me tell you something. Whoa, watch out. Church ski trip. I'll show you what I mean. Well, this story that's passed into wood legend was uh, from a trip that my grandfather took with my two cousins and my aunt. And uh, they went to Colorado in a time where a huge winter storm blew through. Like one that the, the, the town hadn't seen in years. The kind of storm that wasn't like, oh man, it's cold and frosty. It was they were shut in to their hotel. It was the kind of storm where they could not get out. And their days that they should have been spent skiing, they were playing dominoes and cards and they were waiting and killing the time. It was like the kind of storm where literally the manager of the hotel like took a grocery list from all these people that had become friends and cabin mates and shut-ins because they had depleted the continental breakfast and this guy was taking a grocery list to go trek out into, you know, uh, uphill both ways in the snow that's eight feet and all this and uh, to like go get them food because the storm was just shutting down everything. So they were on their way because it had let up after a few days They were on their way to the airport when the weather had cleared enough and the flights weren't canceled. So they were in the car. My two cousins get in the back seat. My grandfather gets in the front seat. And my aunt is in, or rather, my grandfather's in the driver's seat. My aunt's in the passenger seat. And they set off. And of course, as these things happen, where it's nice and sunny and beautiful, immediately they get on the road after they've literally dug their car, or rather paid some guy to dig their car out of the snow drift. 
Of course, when it's bright and sunny when they leave, all of a sudden the dark shadows come in, the wind starts whipping through the mountains, and the snow just, the bottom falls out, and they can't see but maybe 20 feet in front of them. And so what my grandfather does, because he didn't use them skiing, he took his ski goggles and he put them on thinking that would give him an edge to see maybe 21 feet. And so you can imagine that he's ready to grip it and rip it because they're on these mountain passes back down to the airport in Denver or wherever. So my cousins naturally yawn, curl up, and take a nap in the back seat. And so we have the same vehicle, and we have two cousins in the back, taking a nap, seeming to not have a care in the world that they're on this mountain pass, not a care in the world that the snow is coming down, they can't see in front of them, because you know what? That's Papa's problem. Now, Papa, on the other hand, is leaned forward. You've seen your dad or grandfather, or maybe you've been the one trying to hold on for dear life. He's leaned forward, right? He's not gangster rolling. He's leaning forward. He's got... His death grip, uh, that's a terrible thing to say, a death grip when you're on a mountain pass. He's got his holding on for dear life grip on the thing. He's got his goggles on, and what he's doing is he's tracking the two brake lights of an 18-wheeler in front of him, trying to get him through the fog. He is alert. He is awake. He is dialed in, and my cousins in the same vehicle are dialed out. They're asleep. I think Israel, in this time in which we read this passage in Isaiah, was asleep. They're in the same boat, same car, same haze as Isaiah. Struggled to see a way forward, but they were asleep. They were in the kind of season of waiting that was just hoping that things would just kind of settle down. They were waiting and thinking that we can continue to do what we're doing and expect that the results would come out in our favor, even though what they were doing was turning away from God who protect them, turning away from God who had blessed them, turning away from God who had united them. They had fallen asleep. And this sleep was the kind of sleep that didn't just turn on God, it turned on the others that they were supposed to care for. The first bit of Isaiah is God saying, I am done with your empty religion. You're sleepwalking through this life. I'm done with it. Do I need goats? I don't need goats. I don't need your festivals to try and pretend like everything's okay. It's not. But they couldn't see it. They're asleep. They're asleep because there are political forces. There are storms brewing all around them. And this one in particular when Isaiah is writing was from a storm called Assyria that was up north. And they were sleepwalking and continuing to try this God and that God and this ritual and that ritual. And in steps Isaiah. And Isaiah is the one that's in the driver's seat. And he's leaned in, he's locked in, and he is awake, he is alert. And then he speaks. And he speaks these words that have become so famous. It's even on this banner here in our worship service. But he speaks these words that aren't just famous. They're not just platitudes like we talked about last week. They're words of hope. They're words of light. They're words in the darkest places. And these words are a wake-up call. And he is so clear in these words. He speaks as if this has already happened. 
And he speaks of this child who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He speaks as though he can hold this child. Because he's looked through the haze, through the fog, and he sees it as if it's as good as present. More than the child who sees that bicycle-shaped present next to the tree, who is just sure that that bike is mine on December 25th. Isaiah is looking 700 years into the future. Some people could make a case that the child he was talking about would be born in a few years and he'd be a king. But the kind of names that Isaiah is giving this child is not some person not another king you've seen. He's looking 700 years over the horizon and he says this child is given to us and he is a light that is dawn that illuminates the dark fog in which we find ourselves. It's that difference between the waiting that we just want to hurry up and sift idly by. That's inactive waiting. Isaiah is a voice of active waiting. One waiting gets lost in the fog, driving down the mountain pass, taking a nap. The other kind of waiting, active waiting, is the one that sees through it and walks toward the light. And these people needed light. Look back at what Isaiah said of these people facing that storm that's brewing in the north. They were a people who had walked in darkness. This first chunk I'm just calling a light has dawned because it's a powerful image for a people in darkness. Look with me. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. If you read back to chapter 8, it's not on the screen. He's just talked about people who are finally starting to rouse from their sleep. They're looking around, but all they see is shadowy figures and gloom. He says, guess what? No more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are two little tribes that aren't big, famous, Twitter-following people. You know, they don't have the big newsmakers. They're these two little tribes in the northern section, watch, of the northern kingdom, which was Israel. Remember last week we were looking at Jeremiah, and I told you that Israel, or God's people, was divided into two kingdoms, Israel and what else? Judah. So Israel, this is pre-Jeremiah's time. Israel is that section in the north. And these two names, Zebulun and Naphtali, were two little podunk tribes in the tippy-top north of that northern kingdom, Israel. And it says in the past, he's humbled these people. Read, they've been beaten up pretty good. Why? Because that storm of Syria is just a shade more north. And when they're coming down, looking at Israel and the capital Samaria, they're looking at Israel in their sights because what empires want to do is impose their will, their non-peace. They want to offer violence and take. And so they've got Israel in their sights and they're headed south. Well, that means that they're going to beat up that first little wave pretty good. He says they've been humbled, they've been beat up. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. We know Galilee. Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. We know Galilee because that's where Jesus came from. That's that region up there. So 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene, 
Isaiah looks out in the horizon and says, in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, which would be like saying by North Central Expressway. It was that straight down route through the river, and it was a major trade route. He's going to honor this little region, these little tribes. He will honor this place, and how will he do it? Look at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah saw that light just breaking over the horizon, and he imagines those living in the land of deep darkness, in the fog of war, asleep and finally starting to rouse and saying, wait, 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 things are looking bad. On those people, a light has dawned. Living in darkness or living in a land of deep darkness. We've had decades of pop songs to help articulate what that looks like, yes? We've read poetry and we've been teenagers that have been angsty and gloomy, yes? We understand that. Well, I don't have to explain what it feels like to live in the land of deep darkness. I'm not trying to minimize it either because that word gloom, is a good way to describe an outlook in which you cannot see how anything can get better. Living in darkness could be gloom, but it also could be simply a lack of vision. You can't see God in the way forward. I was teasing about the teenager in poetry and all this. How hard is it to will yourself to see the way forward in that land of deep darkness. I don't have to even offer examples of the land of deep darkness. You're going there at this moment. And can we admit, yes, it's hard to see a way forward. It's hard to see a way forward financially, medically, spiritually, relationally, you name it. But this light has dawned And for those living in darkness, what happens when the light dawns is that what seemed so difficult to see can now be illuminated. Advent, that waiting, that looking ahead to the horizon where the light is dawning, is the kind of dawning that illuminates what looked dark and shadowy before. It illuminates what you could not see before. It reframes our world. It reframes our situation. When Paul talks about grief in those lands of darkness, he will say, we do not grieve as those without hope. We need to be a people stubbornly seeing the shadows and waiting for the light to crack over the horizon. And what looked dark and daunting and impossible, now all of a sudden in the light it's illuminated and we can walk beyond it. Advent is a wake-up call. And the light to whom it speaks, the light for whom we wait, is coming. And it reframes the darkness of the world. So when we wait, people walking in the darkness, we wait as those who have seen the light dawning. It looks dark, but it's reframing, it's reshaping. And here's the difference between just actively saying, oh, that's great, it'll be a happy ending. That's inactive. The active waiting would be, oh, great, that light is beautiful. And you work 
to make more of that light shine into your hearts, into your relationships. The active waiting says, I'm going to live my life in such a way in which that light is not 700 years in front of me. It's right here with me. Because Emmanuel, who Isaiah promised in chapter 7, is God with us. And when God is with us, we can celebrate regardless of the circumstances, which is what happens in verse 3. Remember, Assyria is coming in and bullying and wrecking shop. And Isaiah, who has seen the horizon, is certain that right now in this present moment, I can say you've enlarged the nation. You've increased their joy. They rejoice, these people who've seen the light, before you as a people who rejoice at harvest. People who are rejoicing at harvest say, I've got all I need and then some. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Warriors who are resting knowing that the battle is behind them. And here are the spoils of war. I can move on with a new life. Then he says, for as in the day of Midian's defeat... You've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Midian, that's another crazy name that we encounter in Isaiah's vision of the horizon of light and hope. Midian, if you go back to Judges 6, I got really stuck in Judges 6 and 7. That's that famous section with Gideon. I got really stuck in chapter 6 because Gideon is looking and saying, pardon me, Lord, but um, Midian is the bully of the moment. They are the one who's oppressing us. Um, I don't think we can do this. Judges 6 has this beautiful conversation in which literally like the NIV says, um, pardon me, God, and uh, he's talking to him. And he's saying, we can't do this. And then God says, am I not sending you? Gideon looks at him and says, hey, this business, this messenger's telling me about I'm the Lord who has saved you. I rescued you from Egypt. I'm the Lord. He says, "Um, pardon me. How can I say that? Look at it. It's beautiful. It's crazy. And God says, but aren't I sending you? And by the way, just so you're sure that it's not just you, y'all remember what happens in that battle? He pairs down that little army to about 300 folks, and they walk up to Midian, the biggest bully of the time, and how do they defeat them? But with a lot of noise. And they did it in such a way where Gideon could not go back and say, man, look at us, we're 300 like that movie that will be released in 1,500 years. No, they say, God did this. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, he not only shattered the yoke that burdens them, that bar across their shoulders, that bar of the oppressor, you know what oppression feels like. He's shattered that bar and he's done so in a way that you can only look and say, God has done this. But what else is God going to do? What is his plan? What does Isaiah see? Look at verse 5. And by the way, when God does this, every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood, 
You don't have to take it to the dry cleaners and get it washed because you've got to fight again. It will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. I think about Mark Moore. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Mark uh, planted this church. He was a pastor of this church for 11 years. And he had this awakening that God's plan, even though he was an ex-Marine, was a way of nonviolence. It was a way of following a Savior who chose to be killed rather than to kill. And he was looking on his way out to go on to the other things that God had called him to. He was looking for a guy who would turn all of his guns, melt them down, and turn them into crosses he could hang on his wall. That's pretty bad to the bone, if you ask me. Because what is stronger, to hide behind an arsenal or to melt them things down and hide behind the power of the one who is seeking to end all wars? His plan, though he's used and humbled himself, working in history, uh, he's, he's laboring with people whose uh, bloodshed and violence, and we look out at this world and we say, surely this is not what God intends. Surely God does not intend ISIS to have their way. Surely God does not intend for all the other empires who've swung their swords throughout history to go and impose their wills, but God is at work, and we wait until God gets the last word. And all of our toys that we use to kill each other, you won't need them. And if you're unconvinced, skip to the last half of Isaiah, and you'll see God's plan for peace. Because when God reigns, we do not need to murder. When God reigns, we do not need to fear the enemy. When God reigns, peace. It's the way it ought to be. The Hebrews had a word for it. It was called shalom. It was when everything was in its right order. You know why war happens? Because things are not in their right order. You know why people revolt? is because people have oppressed them. But not so when God reigns. So what's his answer then? Isaiah, what is it that you're looking for? Because it looks really dark now. Adam, how can you talk about peace? How can you talk about peace when in this country, forget wars, do you know that since the beginning of 2013 to the end of November, there's been a thousand and some days, only 14 of them, only 14 in the last how long is that? Nearly three years. Only 14 have been without a recorded mass shooting. A mass shooting is defined as four people or more getting shot. Only 14 days have we had a break. How can we talk about peace? Don't think politics. Think about the fact that you can't go buy a dang ticket to Star Wars without freaking out when you're in a crowd of people because of people who are not submitting to the reign of God who is working at peace and love and restoration of this broken world. How can we talk about peace when we're afraid of refugees from Syria or we're afraid from militarized extremist Muslims in ISIS? How can we talk about peace? How can we talk about peace when all these European nations that are joining were bombing and were fearing 
It seems like fear is reigning, not peace. How can we talk about this? How can we talk about peace when most recently in Chicago, another video gets released of a young person getting shot 16 times by a police officer, and we're bent out of shape because of some stupid hashtag about this or that lives mattering? You know what matters? That we've got to name the fact that racism is an oppressing demonic force that is still keeping this country under its sway. How can we talk about peace? God's answer to all the things that plagued Israel then and us now is not a warrior ready to make battle. It was a child. God's answer to all the empires and bullies swaggering their way through history is a child. God's answer to ISIS God's answer to gun violence, to domestic violence, to racist violence, or any ism violence is a child. And Isaiah looks beyond the horizon. And he says, it clear as day, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. This whole section of Isaiah in these bleak words about the situation that looks like fear is reigning, it's talking about a sign of hope that a child would do it. For Israel, a child was a sign that maybe things could be better in the next generation. Maybe we'll get it right with the next king. To us, a child is born. It's as good as done for Isaiah. And you can imagine Assyria, Babylon after them, Persia after them, and on and on down through history, snickering each Advent, each Christian, uh, Christmas, when Christians, man and woman, bow to a child. But his answer is a child on whom the government will be on his shoulders. You like how in that previous section, what was on the shoulders of God's people? Do you see it? It was a yoke that burdened them. The bar across their shoulders. It was the rod of their oppressor. And the government, the reigning presence and power will be on his shoulders. And you know what will be on those who follow this king? A yoke that is easy. A burden that is light. And it's a place in which we can follow one that is called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful counselor. He plans out the way ahead. He's a wonder planner. Mighty God in the Hebrew looks like God hero, which you can just imagine this child's like rock and roll Marvel superhero thing that says God hero. He's one that not only plans wonderful things, but he has the strength to carry them out. And then the everlasting father. This is why it can't just be a king, a dude. And it's so shocking even in the Old Testament to talk about this child as an everlasting father, much less mighty God. Everlasting Father, a loving protector who cares for his people. He doesn't give them a yoke of oppression. He provides for them, cares for them, sustains them, protects them. And this child is Prince of Peace. He's one who rules, and he does so in peace. 
God's answer to all that frightens us. God's answer to all those in deep despair. The light that is dawn is child. And he is all of these things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he's reflecting on this child, why would God send a child? He writes this in a really great little book called uh, God is in the Manger. It's an Advent devotional reflection. It's got kind of some snippets and some edited stuff. It's a little short thing, but really commend it to you. Here's what he says about this child. Mighty God is the name of this child. The child in the manger is none other than God himself. Nothing greater can be said. God became a child. And the Jesus child of Mary lives the almighty God. Wait a minute. Don't speak. Stop thinking. Stand still before this statement. God became a child. Here he is. Poor like us. Miserable and helpless like us. A person of flesh and blood like us. Our brother. And yet, he is God. He is might. Where is the divinity Where is the might of the child? In the divine love in which he became like us. His poverty in the manger is his might. In the might of love, he overcomes the chasm between God and humankind. He overcomes sin and death. He forgives sin and awakens from the dead. Kneel down before this miserable manger before this child of poor people and repeat in faith the stammering words of the prophet, mighty God, and he will be your God and your might. Who is it that we need God to be in your land of deep darkness, in our country that's in deep darkness? Who is it that you need him to be? of His greatness and His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne, which is another promise, and over His kingdom, His people. Remember Jeremiah last week talking about that David on the throne? He's going to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That was the other language that Jeremiah used last week. Because you know what happens when you reign with justice? When all things are even and as they ought to be? What fear and war can break out? When he reigns in righteousness and does the right thing, that leads to peace. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, which takes us back to why Isaiah, looking through the fog, can say so matter-of-factly, so distinctly, 700 years and 20-some years before Israel does get wiped out, Isaiah can look with certainty as if he's holding this child who God promised. So we may have beheld the child and we will do so at Christmas. We'll do so Christmas Eve and reflect again on this God that is in the manger. But God has still not accomplished all He wants to accomplish. But we must wait actively. We must wait as if we've already submitted because guess what? We've already submitted to the child king. So why do we have to wait another 700 years or 700 days or who knows how long 
We need to wait. But we do so with our hands locked on the steering wheel, looking forward to the light that's breaking in over the horizon. And we need to ask ourselves, if you are submitted to the child king today, how should you wait? Because I know, and I will tell you, I'm one. I get into some kind of fog, some kind of funk in this season. I've told many of you at lunch or just whomever is asking, I tell you, I feel like I've been coming out of a funk. Well, I've been coming out of it really slowly, (laughs) okay? I'm still kind of like half in the funk, just kind of zombie walking out of it. But this week, I had to go and day after day, will myself to try and look through it. I know what it's like to be in a funk, Sometimes groups of people read churches can be in funks. So how do we wait as those who've already submitted to the child king? Well, he rules with peace. Great. Make peace in your heart and in your relationships. If he's the prince of peace and you've submitted to him, you can wait and go be a monk in the desert. You can go sit in a funk and live in the land of deep darkness and complain to me and everybody else how crappy this is and my life sucks and this church is terrible and we don't do anything and whatever. Nobody does that. I just think about that, which is why I need to seek the light and <laughs> ask the Prince of Peace to rule in my heart. We get in funks. We get in land of deep darkness. We don't wait inactively. We make peace if we're submitted to the Prince of Peace. And we make it in our hearts. We make it in our relationships. So he rules with justice. Okay, great. Fight for justice in our city. Don't just post something on Facebook like I do that's like kind of some comment about justice and all this. And when you see something that is out of balance, when you hear someone say something that's out of balance, fight for justice. That's how you wait. Well, he rules with righteousness, he says at the end. Then do right. Don't just talk about right. Do right. Follow his example. Because the child king has come and he is coming. So we look ahead to the light that's dawned. And we can walk in that light while we wait for the sun to rise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this season. As Robin reminded us in the benediction last week, waiting is tough, but may we embrace it. May we embrace it as a season to hear the voice of the king who came as a child. May we hear that voice speaking softly, over the horizon of wherever you find us tonight. May we hear that voice and may you be who we need you to be. May you be who you are in this church that we might gather around you, not looking for more stuff to do, not looking for more things to run out and check off the list, but when we gather around you, seek your face, hear you, and may we wait in such a way that is hastening your coming. And even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly because this world and we need you. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, in just a moment, you're invited to respond. We do every week remember the body and the blood that was sacrificed. And it was the way that he defeated the rod of the oppressor.
And so if you're in Christ, if you've submitted to that child king, we invite you to come. We have bread here, and you can dip it in either juice or wine. And if you're unable to make the walk, you just kind of raise your hand and we'll find you if you'd like to partake. For others of you, please don't feel uncomfortable. If you don't come up, you're welcome to sit, to sing, to reflect, and uh, to wait. Wait for him and to wait for our time that we sing and close our service. So as the Lord leads you, would you come and respond? May the words of John 14, 27 plant themselves in your hearts tonight. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Take the gift of peace you have been offered here tonight back with you into the world this week. Do not be people who walk in darkness. Instead, walk as people who have seen a great light. Let your faith be renewed during this Advent season, and may you be inspired to act. Be the peacemakers that your neighbors are longing for. Be the peacemakers your coworkers are searching for. Be the peacemakers the world so desperately needs. And by being peacemakers, may you in turn find the peace you are longing for. Go in peace, make peace, be at peace.